Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppress you. But you have now rejected your God, who saved you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Samuel, uh, Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome all the college students back to you from a retreat. It looked like it was a super blast, so welcome back. Um, tomorrow is President's Day, so I thought what we could do is to take a trip back to the past, uh, specifically 1960, in a historic debate, presidential debate between JFK and Nixon. Uh, one of the reasons why this debate was so historic was because it was the very first time a presidential debate was ever aired on national television. It was 1960. Uh, over 90% of Americans by then owned a television set. And so about 70 million people were watching the debate between JFK and Nixon. And if you're watching the debate on the TV, there you would see a young 43-year-old JFK, tall, tan, handsome. And in contrast to JFK, you would see an older Nixon ghostly pale because he was recovering from the flu and he stood with his knee bent like this because he was still recovering from knee surgery. Now, if you were listening to the presidential debate on radio, you wouldn't have noticed these distinctions. But if you were watching the presidential debate on TV, it was very hard not to notice the visual optics and contrast between the two candidates. And now, uh, what ultimately ended up happening is that uh, JFK won by a very narrow margin, and one of the reasons why probably is because of the visual optics uh, between the two different candidates. And so whether it is presidential debates or interviewing for a job or you know, liking or swiping someone on Hinge, uh, we tend to really value outward metrics. And rightfully so to a certain degree, because if someone is disheveled, they probably shouldn't run for president. 
if someone is disheveled, they probably won't get the job. If someone is disheveled, they prob you probably won't get a date. So outward metrics do matter. On the other hand, you can make the argument that in our culture today, we tend to just a tad overvalue outward metrics uh, more so than uh, inward metrics, uh, particularly in our hypervisual uh, culture that we live in. And so the reason why we're doing this series on 1 Samuel and the reason why we've entitled it After God's Own Heart is because we want to be a people that focus more on the inward metrics than the outward metrics. Uh, God cares far more about who we are becoming than what we are doing. And so he cares about the heart more than anything else. Christianity has a robust theology of the body. We're not platonic dualists where we say the body is good and the soul is bad. But Christianity also has a very robust theology of not only the body, but also the heart. I, I'll give you an example of this. So I have a, uh, an almost six-year-old. She's turning uh, six in two weeks and a three-and-a-half-year-old. Now, how do you communicate to a six-year-old and a three-year-old a theology of the body? Well, one of the things that they love is all things Disney and just stories in general, right? So when we're watching things uh, like, uh, like Beauty and the Beast, and we say, you know, did Belle have a big heart or a small heart? They'll say, big heart. What about Gaston? Big heart or small heart? They'll say, small heart. What about Corella Deville? They're like, small heart. What about Ursula? Small heart. So we're like, girls, do you want a big heart or do you want a small heart? And they're always like, big heart, right? Now, if I were to ask you the question, do you want a big heart or do you want just a tiny heart? What would you say? You would say you want a big heart, right? I think all of us say we want a big heart. But just because you want a big heart, it doesn't mean you're actually working for it. Take a look at the metrics that you value the most. Are they more outward or inward? Does your time, calendar, GCAL, downtime, free time point to more out outward metrics or inward metrics? Do you care more about your clothes, how many likes you get, uh, the job, the title, the resume, getting the trophy wife, the trophy husband? Do you care more about that stuff or do you care about things like character, integrity, humility, gentleness, which is very rarely talked about, meekness, very rarely talked about, do you care about that stuff more or the outward stuff more? What you spend your time, money on, point to what you really care about. Uh, the chapter that we're looking at today, the people of God, what they valued the most were more outward metrics and inward metrics. And because of that, it ultimately led to their demise. And I think similarly for us, when we tend to value our, our outward metrics more than our inward metrics, it can, it can ultimately lead to our demise as well. So the question is, how can we learn from the mistakes that they made? Secondly, how can we learn to value our inward metrics, not only verbally, but actually, and truly value them more? Okay, so take a look with me at verse uh, 17 to 19. It says this, uh, Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint, us, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. So if you've, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, um, 
we're, we're taking a look at the, the life of prophet Samuel. And if you've been with us for the past few weeks, it almost seems like Samuel was just born from his mother Hannah, doesn't it? But by the time we get to chapter 10, Samuel is already super old and gray. And so that's the thing about the Bible. When you're reading, reading the Bible, in just a matter of a few chapters, a lifetime can go by, if not generations can go by. This is why in verse 18, when God is talking about the Exodus story, how he brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, out of slavery, it almost makes it seem like it just happened within the life of Samuel. But the truth of the matter is, it happened four or 500 years prior to Samuel, okay? Yet, the expectation from God is that the people of God still remember what took place in the past, lest they forget what he can do in their present lives. Now, the challenge for us is that we don't even remember what we ate for lunch yesterday. Think about it. You probably don't even remember that. How in the world are we going to remember what God has done in the past? Well, one of the reasons why we gather in this space once a week is to remember his goodness to us in the past so that we don't forget his goodness to us in the present. When we forget his goodness and faithfulness in our lives in hindsight, we become blind to his goodness and faithfulness to us in the present. And when we become blind to his goodness and faithfulness to us in the present, you know what we start doing? Our eyes start wandering to other things, other resources, other gods, other idols, to give us what we ultimately need. So there are three things, patterns that typically emerge when, they, when this happens, if we can pull, pull those three words up. They are theocracy, anarchy, and monarchy. Now if you've ever read the Old Testament before and you thought to yourself, I have no idea what I'm reading, just think about these three words and you'll understand half the Old Testament. So the idea of a theocracy is that God is king over our life. He's the ruler over our, our life. But typically, what ends up happening is that when we enter into a relationship with God, we sort of enter into a relationship with him like a social contract. I don't know if you know Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher. He, he invented this, he, you know, he, he, he had this thing called a social contract theory. So Hobbesian, you know, social contract theory is basically that we're all a bunch of autonomous individuals who reluctantly enter into social contracts with one another to pursue our own self-interest. So kind of what we do with God, we enter into autonomous individuals, we reluctantly enter into a relationship with him because he has like power and he controls our lives and all that stuff, so we enter into it reluctantly. But the moment he breaks that contract and doesn't pursue our own self-interest, we're done. So that's, that's what happens here. Theocracy is the king of our life, but we break that social contract with him because he's not pursuing our self-interest, he's not making me happy. So what ends up happening then is anarchy in our lives, chaos, disorder, which makes sense if we usurp God from his throne over our life. So there's chaos, disorder, life is not going good. So what we end up doing is that our eyes start wandering to other resources, other kings, other monarchs, other saviors, other idols to give us what we need. The problem is they can't deliver the goods. Plato says it well when he says our hearts are like leaky jars try to fill it up, materialism, hedonism, relationship, money, but our hearts are still like unsatisfied and discontent. Why? Because there's only one thing that can make our heart overflow. It has to be something big like God. It can't just be like a little relationship or something. It has to be more than you've said. So we're constantly left searching for different things. And this is what ends up happening. Rick Warren in his very seminal book, The Purpose Driven Life, he says this, everybody eventually surrenders to something or someone 
If not to God, you will surrender to the opinions or expectations of others, to money, to resentment, to fear, or to your own pride, lust, or ego. You were designed to worship God, and if you fail to worship him, you will create other things or idols to give your life to. You are free to choose what you surrender to, but you are not free from the consequences of that choice. So here's something that you have to understand about what God is like. God loves you, and because he loves you, he plants in your heart this thing called freedom. Because without freedom, there can't be true love. Right? You have to have the freedom to choose him, right? The problem with freedom is that God kind of slightly opened the door for you to freely not choose him as well. But he still gives us freedom because without freedom, there can't be love. And typically, when we freely choose not to have God a part of our life, what ends up resulting is chaos, anarchy, and disorder in our life. And we start to look for different things to, to give us the satisfaction and the uh, the fulfillment uh, that we that we need. Uh, there's a there's a saying. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the saying before, but the saying is that smart people learn from their own mistakes, but wise people learn from the mistakes of others. You ever hear that? So we're all smart. Not all of us are wise. Uh, particularly me. I have a thick skull, and so sometimes I don't learn from the mistakes of others. So what does God do? He says, I'm going to give you freedom. If this is what you're going to choose, you can freely have it. You know what he does? He enrolls me in the school of hard knocks, get kicked back and forth, left and right, and like maybe 10 years later, I'll actually learn my lesson. Right? Smart people learn from their own mistakes, but wise people learn from the mistakes of others. Are you smart or are you wise? There's a difference between the two. So here's what hap is happening with the people they freely choose someone else other than God in their life. And so God enrolls them in the school of hard knocks. And we read in verse 20 to 24, when Samuel had all Israel come forward by, the tri by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has a man come, come here yet? And the Lord said, yes. He has hidden himself among the supplies or luggage. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. So Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him in, among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. Now, if you read the previous chapter, one of the ways that Saul is described as is super, super handsome and good looking. And in this chapter, he is described as a head taller than everyone else. And this is significant because nowhere in the Bible is an Israelite ever referred to as tall, usually super vertically challenged. So if you think about like the Canaanites, they're like tall as giants and we're tiny grasshoppers. Goliath, tall giant tiny little David shepherd boy. But then here's, here's this guy named Saul who's one of us. He looks like us. He's like one of us. And he's like a head taller than everyone else. And once they see his outward metrics, what do they say? Long live the king. Like this is, this is our guy. This is our savior, the one that we've been uh, looking for. And 
Generally speaking, I would say that these are the same kind of outward metrics that we tend to value or look for as well. Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Blink, he says, in the U.S. population, about 14.5% of all men were six feet or over. Among CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, that number is 58%. Even more strikingly, in the general American population, 3.9% of adult men are six foot two or taller. Among my CEO sample, 30% were six foot two or taller. Clearly, even in our society, we tend to value outward metrics a ton. This is why, you know, when we're on our dating apps, for example, and we see like someone's profile, their face, their pictures, their resume, we're like, swipe because they're too beneath us, right? Even though we haven't gotten to know their inward metrics. This is also why we tend to get nervous sometimes when we meet famous people or powerful people or successful people because we overvalue those outward metrics so much despite the fact that we don't know their inward uh, metrics at all. But I think one of the things that God is trying to show us in this real life story is this. Number one, even the best of men are men at best. You have to know that. Even the best of us, we are just men. Number two, God values inward metrics far, far more than outward metrics. Number three, sometimes our outward metrics make us blind to our inward metrics. This is why you can meet someone with the, that looks great on the outside. Chaos, they're a mess on the inside. Uh, there was one person who once said that um, I'm a simple person who hides a thousand feelings behind my happiest smile. So we're very good at putting up a front. We're very good at putting up, you know, a, a, you know, a facade. But inside, we could be, uh, there could be chaos down here. This was Saul. First glance, tall, dark, and handsome. Outward metrics, absolutely superb. But do not confuse uh, what he looks like for what he looks like on the inside. Saul came from very humble roots from a, a, a no-name tribe and a no-name clan. He wasn't from New York City, he was from like Montana. So he had very humble roots. Sorry if any of you were from there. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, humble roots, but do not mistake his humble roots for humility. Okay, because where is Saul in this story? He's hiding behind a bunch of away suitcases. He's like nowhere to be found. And it's not like this was a surprise to him because in the previous chapter, Samuel gave him a heads up that he would be coronated king. This is not humility, though. This is actually cowardice, which is taking place. You know, one of the things that I think about uh, when you think about leadership as a whole, personally, I think that the best leaders are humble, reluctant leaders who don't need positions. They're not chasing after positions so much as positions are chasing after them. They're not chasing after titles so much as titles are chasing after them. They're acting leadery regardless of whether they have a title or not. And on the flip side, just because you have a title, it doesn't mean you're a good leader, right? You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of us have worked for people who had a title, but they sucked, right? They were terrible. You didn't want to work for them. Just because you have a title, it doesn't mean that you're a great leader. This was Saul. He had a title. He was king. But it didn't mean that he was actually a great leader uh, at all. And if there's one observation that I want us to make about the life of King Saul, uh, it is this. Uh, if you live here in our city, chances are that you're pretty smart, uh, you're pretty talented, and thirdly, you're very ambitious. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Okay. So you're smart, 
you're talented, and you're very ambitious. Now, if your talents are over here, but your character is way back here, and you have a title or position, it is just a matter of time. Just a matter of time before you start to hurt other people, but most of all, you start to hurt yourself. Just a matter of time. And if there's, if there's one sort of, you know, observation that I want us all to make, it's this, especially because most of us, you know, most of you in this room are in your 20s and 30s. There's a chance that you have certain dreams. You have certain things that you, you want out of life, right? Relationship, you want a lot of money, you want, you want a title, you want certain things to happen in your life. And there's a part of you that actually might feel frustrated that you're not getting those things that you want right now. And so you're upset because God is not giving you the best life that you want. But can I encourage you, rather than looking at your current predicament with frustration because there are delays in the things that you want, can I encourage you not to look at those things with frustration so much as thanks? Could it be possible? I'm not saying this is all the time, okay? I'm not saying it's all the time, but could it be possible that one of many reasons why you're not getting what you want right now is because your talent's over here, but your character is way back here. And so God is not giving you that title, position, relationship, job, or money, what you want, because you are not ready for it yet. Because if you get it, you will not only hurt a lot of people, but most of all, you will hurt yourself. Could it be possible that God is violating your freedom, not giving you what you want, because your talents are far outpacing your character? I think so. Now you might say, well, I thought, I thought God doesn't violate our freedom. I thought he gives us freedom. That's the only way to love him. Yes. But at the same time, he is a loving father, is he not? I will violate my kids' freedom to cross the street by themselves. I will violate their freedom to watch Netflix all day. I will violate their freedom to eat Snickers for dinner. Why? Because I love them. There are times where God gives us what we want to learn the hard way, pedagogically. But there are other times where he will violate your freedom and not give you what you want. And I know that there are many dreams in this room. But rather than looking at those things with frustration, give thanks to God because you are not, you might not be ready yet for that thing. He cares far more about who you are becoming than what you are doing. He does not care about your outward metrics so much as he cares about your inward metrics that you might still have to work on in your life. There's a pastor um, centuries ago from the uh, Notre, Dame, uh, Notre Dame Cathedral that once said, if I had all the power that God had, I would change everything about my life. If I had all the power God had, I would change everything. But if I had all the wisdom God had, I wouldn't change a thing. Could it be possible that the reason why he's not changing things in your life is because he wisely knows what's taking place in your life and he doesn't, for that reason, he does not want to give you uh, what you want. One tangible way to work on then improving our inward metrics and stretching the borders of our hearts is how we handle criticism. Take a look with me in verse 26 to 27. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God touched. But some scoundrels said, 
how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. So here, Saul is coronated king. And like most leaders, you have lovers and haters. You have people that praise you, and you also have people that curse you. And this is what's taking place here. There are people that are disrespecting who he is. And one of the things that I will say about leadership, and by the way, if you're thinking you're to yourself, I'm not a leader, absolutely not. Every one of us, you're a leader. If you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're parenting your parents right now, you're a leader. If you're an older sibling, you're a leader. If you're a teacher, you're a leader. If you have a certain job, you're a leader. Every one of us here are leaders, okay? And what that means is that none of us are immune to criticism. You can try to avoid criticism, but you are not immune to it. All of us experience it. And the higher up you go, the more criticism you face. The taller the trees, the more wind in your face. So the more criticism that you'll receive. So my question to you is is this. If you face criticism, which you will, how well do you handle criticism? Do you get pugilistic and defensive? Or are you the type of person that receives criticism well? I was talking to... um, I do, I do a ton of premarital counseling, and I was talking to one couple many years ago, and one, you know, marriage is you know, lifelong journey of criticism, right, where both are criticizing one another. And uh, I, I, asked, uh, I asked the couple, you know, how do you handle criticism? And I, I'll, never, I'll never forget what one person said. He, they, said um, they, they said one word. So it's like, how do you handle criticism? Poorly. <laughs> and I think that's most of us. We, we don't handle criticism very well. But one of the things that you have to know about criticism is that criticism is a gift from God. Our critics, although they seem like enemies, they are instruments of God. Criticism can reveal your blind spots. Oftentimes, you know, you might think, ah, but only like 10% of what they're saying is true and 90% of what they're saying is wrong, so you just dismiss the 10% so easily. And I think that's wrong. To use a sports, sports analogy, how coachable are you? A person that's super coachable will even look for that 10% and not dismiss everything because the 10% of what they have to say is also right. So let me ask you again, how well do you receive criticism? Do you handle it well or do you get hyper-defensive and start blaming everyone else? For all of Saul's faults, his cowardice, and we'll take a look at his biography next week as well at the end, but for all of his faults, if you take a look at this, the end of, end of this verse, has, uh, it, the phrase says, when the haters come, it says, but Saul kept silent. This he does right. Usually what happens when you get criticized, there's a dynamic that takes place with our emotions. When we get criticized, our emotions get high. And you know what happens when your emotions get high? Your wisdom gets low. So this is why when you get criticized, do not text that person back right away. Do not call them back right away. Do not meet with them right away. Why? Because your emotions are too high. It is only when the emotions get lower that your wisdom can get higher. This is why Saul kept silent. You respond in haste, my friends, at the criticism that you get at work, family, marriage, whatever. You respond in haste promise you, you will regret what you text, you will regret what you email, you will regret what what comes out of your mouth. Take a moment to not be hasty. Your emotions are too high, your wisdom is too low. And there are times when we receive criticism, if you want to handle it well, you must 
uh, keep silent when this takes place. I like what Tim Keller said when he said that uh, don't let success get into your head and don't let criticism into your heart. The moment criticism starts going into your heart, you start meditating on that, emotions are going to get high and your wisdom is going to get low. So can I ask you again, how well do you handle criticism? Are you good at receiving criticism when it comes into your life? How coachable are you? Because criticism are an, is an instrument of God and a gift that God gives to us. The American writer Albert Hubbard uh, once said that, uh, what did he say? He said, the final proof of greatness lies in being able to endure criticism without resentment. How well can you endure criticism without bitterness, rage, and resentment? That is the final proof of greatness. And a person who truly understands the gospel is able to endure criticism without resentment. In fact, I would go as far as to say a person who truly understands the gospel, when they are criticized, they'll respond to their critic by saying, you're right, and you don't even know the half of it. I'm actually far worse than that. You're right. I am messed up. But this is what freedom is, right? Freedom isn't just the ability to do whatever you want. That's not freedom. True freedom is being able to say, you're right. I am messed up. I am free. I freely admit that. But by the grace of God, I stand. <sighs> if you can get to that point in your life, that's what it means to truly, truly be free. And you know where you get the muscle to do that? You remember who Jesus is and what he did for you. Who, by the way, was from a no-name town. What was the saying back then? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? No name town. Was he good looking? A head taller than everyone else? No, he was not. Isaiah 53, if you can pull that up. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low self-esteem. He did not have any good outward metrics. They were imperfect, and yet his inward metrics were absolutely perfect. Like every leader, Jesus had his lovers and haters, people that praised him and people that criticized him as well. Yet in the midst of all the criticism and all the hate that was taking place, where was he? Was he hiding behind a tree or supplies? Was he hiding behind luggage? No. He was hanging in public, half naked, dying on a cross. This king did not hide. He was not a coward, but he was fearless. And even as he's hanging on his deathbed, you would think that people would be nice to him. You know, when a man is dying, you don't, you don't throw more salt on their wounds. But what's happening? Everyone watching, you saved others, you can't even save yourself. People hanging right next to him on the cross, the two criminals, even they're criticizing him. <laughs> and yet what comes out of his mouth? Oh my gosh, these guys are idiots. Like, I, I can't believe I'm dying for them. Does he get defensive? Does he call them out? What comes out of his mouth? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Even then, even when he is getting criticized, 
he's not defensive against his critics. Instead, he defends his critics. <sighs> That's a big heart. That's not a small heart. If you can get to that point in your life, that's what it means to look like Jesus. That's what he did for us when he died on the cross for us. And so my question to you is, again, is this, what, is this the kind of heart that you want? Do you really want a big heart or do you want a small heart? How open are you to receiving criticism? How well do you handle it? And as you take a look at your time, your money, your GCAL, your downtime, are you working on your inward metrics or are you just working on your outward metrics? There is nothing more attractive than a person that looks like Jesus. And I'm not talking about his outward appearance, but his inward appearance. There is nothing more attractive in life than that. No CV, no resume can match the inward metrics of what Jesus looks like. The question is, do you want that? Do you want a big heart or a small heart? Are you working on the right metrics, not the wrong metrics? Last but not least, how do you handle criticism? Let's pray together. Father, would you uh, remind us that you are a defense attorney and so when people criticize us, we can relax because you defend us. When Satan persecutes us and, say, and says, you're such a loser, you're nobody, I can't believe you did this, even then you defend us, even at our worst moments. And so help us to remember that since you defend us, we don't have to defend ourselves and we can relax. Help us to handle criticism well. Help us to focus on stretching the borders of our hearts so that it's big and not small. Most of all, help us to continually fall in love with the most attractive person ever, Jesus Christ, and help us to look more and more like him. In your name I pray, amen.